you're listening to the cat who did a podcast with me susan romsdorf terry and luke romsdorf terry where we read a book from the cat who mystery series and discuss it on today's episode we're talking about the 20th book in the series the cat who sang for the birds and we have a special guest our first returning guest yes my mother terry romsdorf joins us from her home in oregon for uh with us via via whatever program we're using to uh, embrace the wonders of technology. Via the internet. Via the internet. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. I like that sign on. Good evening. <laughs> now, this was first published in 1998. Yep. And as you say in your notes, this is back to same year releases. Yes, they were no longer releasing uh, hardback and paperbacks separately. Um, they were releasing them about the same time so, you know, you could still get the hardbacks, but for the most part, you had the option to, to get the paperback right as it came out again. Mm, I see. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing we have not said, I think in a couple episodes, or if we have, I just haven't remembered it, but uh, spoilers are ahead. Yes. So uh, if you have not read this book, we'll give everyone a couple moments to go ahead and do so. Welcome back. <laughs> and now we can go ahead and begin with our summary. So... Right. Unless there's anything, Terry, you want to say first before we jump in. I, I just enjoy the way that she brings back characters from previous books. Mm-hmm. Celia Robinson, you know, when we were talking about Euphonia Gage's strange death in Florida and Quinn Quill met uh, Cecilia. Now she suddenly or such has uh, decided to live in uh, you know, 400 miles north of everywhere mm-hmm. and really is a good cook. We knew that along the time, way. And she's keeping Q and the, the cats in treats, which is good. Yes, that, that is the important thing. Yeah, she moved back um, somewhere around, uh, uh, somewhere around the cat who said cheese, I mm-hmm. believe was, uh, was her first book back. Mm-hmm. Um, she, uh, you know, she, she decided there were too many old, old people in Florida. So she moved to, she moved 400 miles north, <laughs> of every, north of everywhere. It's been fun. Where there's not as many old people, I guess. I guess not. <laughs> it, all the, all the old people are youthful, which we will, uh, which we will discover in this particular book. Or they're mm-hmm. a good winter. <laughs> there's only one left. I know. Technically two. Okay, fine. Amanda, say, Amanda still counts. Well, they're double their population now. anyway let's go ahead and let's jump in all right so a few months after the great thaw spring comes early to pickaxe quill is back in the barn with a new gazebo and polly's old house has been turned into the new art center which will be opening soon but vandalism leads to a disappearance and then death so quill and the cat are on the cases there's already a death not quite yet okay (laughs) first paragraph in and already the stakes are high well, it, I mean, the way that she opens this book is hysterical. So the book opens with a furtive male placing an unknown package in another car before quickly driving away. With all of that drama, this is Quill doing Polly's grocery shopping while she's at work, which is very nice. And he leaves things in her car. Although why you would do that if there's no refriger- no good refrigeration, I don't quite understand. Anyway, moving on. Uh, um, previous guest and friend of the show, Bernie Cardell, at one point I made a grocery shopping trip this is many, many years ago. I left a bunch of stuff in the trunk of the car, including not my wisest thing, a gallon of milk. This was over a few hours and he could not get over that. To this day, he will say, let's back up. You bought the milk. It was fresh this afternoon. At 10 o'clock tonight, you're putting it in the fridge. You're gonna drink this milk. 
So don't do what I did. (laughs) (laughs) So we then move from Quill doing Polly's grocery shopping to a dramatic bloody car crash in front of Pickaxe High School. Oh God. Which turns out to be a demonstration and uh, it's a demonstration to encourage sober driving uh, with the annual spring fling dance. And Quill gets annoyed when he calls what he thinks is a hot tip into the uh, something, but they were tipped off ahead of time because this was a stunt. Oh. Now, do we know the mascot of the, uh, the Pickaxe High School? I don't believe so. Hmm. Figured it'd be something obvious like the miners or- Yeah, the pickaxes. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably in there somewhere because there's certainly enough talk about uh, the rivalries between uh, Pickaxe High School and Lockmaster High School sports. <laughs> but I don't remember. Anyway, so Quill sues his annoyance by heading to Lois's luncheonette for pie with Roger McGilvery, who was assigned to cover the stunt. And Roger also shares a story that's not making the paper. Uh, apparently, vandals spray painted the word "witch" on the old Coggin farmhouse on the ninety uh, uh, farmhouse uh, uh, just up the road from Quill's barn, with a ninety-plus-year-old occupant. By the way, citizens of Moose County get the get the uh, Moose County something for free after the ninetieth birthday. <laughs> I think that's kind of a cool publicity set. <laughs> Because this is a small town and they don't want to inflate the vandal's ego, it's reported to the police, but it's not printed in the paper. Small town. It's funny you say that for small town newspapers growing up, the newspaper of Evergreen was the Canyon Courier. And there's always at least half a page, maybe sometimes quarter of a page for sheriff calls. (laughs) (laughs) Just because you got to fill it. You got to fill the paper with stuff. Got to fill it somehow. So after all of that adventure that morning, Quill gets home to find the cats communing with a family of crows outside the barn window. Oh. They are the latest visitors to Kevin Dune's suggested addition to the barnyard, an avian garden. Um, <laughs> well, suge- uh, so that's that's a thing. Uh, while selecting reading material for uh, a visit to the gazebo, Coco knocks Arthur Miller's The Crucible off the shelf. Oh. Since Coco does nothing without a reason, Quill wonders if he, should, if a, he is suggesting that Quill p- pay a visit to the Coggin farm. Uh, he wisely decides that if he's going to do so, he should bring an offering, and he takes some muffins from the new Scottish bakery <laughs> and goes to meet Maud Coggins, 93 years old. She's a woman who has worked the land her whole life. She's been renting her acreage to the McBee brothers, but recently sold a whole lot to a young feller who plans to, pe- who plans to plant food crops, so they tell her, representing a, a lockmaster company called Northern Land Improvement. That doesn't sound suspicious remotely. <laughs> This will, of course, allow her allow her Maud to spend her remaining years in her simple home where she takes care of unwanted dogs. There is a pretty powerful <laughs> description of Maud's home. Um, there's no electricity, no running water, a kerosene stove, a stove, and a dirt floor with chickens and dogs scattered throughout. I hmm. uh, and this is how somebody lives. And Quill asks her if she has a telephone, and she says it's a waste of money. She also claims that she that her kids grew up and left and she has had no contact with her three children and thinks they're all dead. Oh, wow. It's like, okay. Very old, no country for old men kind of thing. I I think so. So what we're going to do here is a little bit unusual. We haven't done this before, Um, but there's also a, we've talked a bit about on some of the previous episodes about the old moose accent at which Maude of course possesses. And having listened to the uh, audiobook a little bit, it, it's a great example of what that kind of sounds like. So we have a clip from the audiobook read by George Waddell. And that's the wrong one. Ready? And one, two, three. They come in here with all them cars, polluting the air and bothering my hens. 
artists they say they be, likely drawn pictures of folks without clothes on. Quillerin said, I'm hoping we'll all be able to live together in peace. Well, I ain't gonna write no letters to the paper. Me, I mind my own business. I be ninety-three. Your dogs are very friendly. Poor old things. Nobody wants them. They come round starving and shivering. I give them a blanket in the shed and something to eat. Do they have names? I call them Blackie, Spot, Dolly, Mabel, and Lil Yeller. Yes, sir. When I pass on, I be leaving my money to take care of poor old dogs. All I want, I want a tombstone next to Bert's, and the words I want on it be Maud Coggin, worked hard, loved animals, mound her own business. Mound her own business. It's interesting. I would have almost, like the, some of the affectations and some of the inflections, I would have almost pegged that as Southern, like, or at least some dialect of like the Ozarks it, or something. It is similar. Um, and this is, again, where, how much of it is choice of the, uh, choice of the reader. Um, but remember that Lillian Jackson Braun lived in the Ozarks for the last part of her life. Mm-hmm. So when she's writing it, it could very easily have taken on that and taken on more of that particular um, inflection. It's in, Yeah, that's interesting to hear the accent with that. And so I'm curious, having not read it myself, and since both of you did, is like the way it's like I did or I done, is it written that way? Yes. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it is all it, it is all written that way. Um, her language is very distinctive. Hmm. Exactly. It reminds me, uh, not to bring up a, pob- a problematic writer, but it's just someone who has a good example of this, but uh, J.K. Rowling, and I know, I understand it's a book for children, but when she's doing a character, I remember distinctly for, say, Fleur de la Cour, who is a French wizard, she would have b- the same kind of hello, Ali, and it would be spelled out phonetically like that. Yes. So it very much is like that. I just pulled it up in the book. Um, likely drawn pic- pictures of folks without clothes on. Without clothes on. Fout. Yeah, no, I see it. I see it. So yeah. I'd be 93. <laughs> Nobody wants them. And this whole, this whole conversation all written out. In old moose. In old moose. <laughs> Fascinating. So it's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I particularly like the way that this is read for this particular one. So. After Quill has now met Maud Coggins and, uh, and gotten her life story, he leaves the Coggin farm and stops by the new art center on the former site of the Trevelyan farmhouse, AKA Polly's aborted house building project. And they're gearing up for their grand opening led by their new manager, Beverly Forfar, who's apparently um, is middle-aged April from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles due to her bright yellow jumpsuit and severely cut hair. Um, <laughs> that her bangs at one point are referred to as aggressive aggressive bangs yes her hair's not red but it's still the, the minute somebody starts describing somebody wearing a yellow jumpsuit i automatically think april from teenage mutant Ninja turtles <laughs> so beverly is furious about all of the mud being tracked into the art center parking lot but it's a farming community you're you're not going to win that one sweetie <laughs> um so you you remember that the in the uh, recording that we played of Maude Coggins speaking, she said she's not going to write any letters to the paper. Um, it must be said that somebody did write a letter to the paper complaining about the mud. It's like, again, can't farming. imagine who. Yeah, can't imagine. <laughs> can't imagine. Um, basically, Quill tells her as much and uh, and does try to soften the blow and say, you know, it's really only that it's spring. And that's what makes it so bad. You know, the rest of the year, it won't be that bad. It'll be fine. 
She gets a less charitable, a charitable response when she refers to the Coggin farmhouse across the street as an eyesore. Um, mm. Quill is less friendly after that one. Although I have to say, uh, Beverly does have some ground with her concern that the dogs might be hurt if they run into the road while there is traffic. Um, but the aesthetic comments don't win her any friends. So the Art Center is a new thing for Pickaxe. It features studios for rent. And uh, within those studios, we meet Paul Scumble, who is the rare portrait painter, currently painting a portrait of local restaurateur and Polly's least favorite county commissioner, Chester Ramsbottom. Yeah, what a name. <laughs> now, when you're done laughing. You're going to make me No, he is not a, a sympathetic character, right with the name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing. Ramsbottom. Uh, Ramsbottom. Any stop saying it. It's going to just make it worse. Anyway, so Sorry. Paul Scumble, who is painting this portrait, was originally commissioned yeah, like a by. Boy here. Yes, you are. Um, <laughs> so Paul Scumble, who's painting this portrait, was originally commissioned by uh, Quill to paint a double portrait of Lynette Duncan, Polly's uh, former sister in law, and her new husband, Carter Lee, before he turned out to be a murdering con artist. Uh, CL. Yes, indeed. So now Quill has decided to commission him to paint a portrait of Polly as Ooh. her birthday gift. Gotta be nice to have money. Um, <laughs> uh, along, yep. the, along the artist studios, we also meet the Butterfly Girl. This is Phoebe Sloan, whose parents own the local drugstore. And she is, as I write originally, she is Moose County famous for her butterfly paintings. She's known by the <laughs> local area. Um, her work is distinctive enough that, you know, if you see it in somebody's house or at the library when it's on display, you know who painted this book. Um, <laughs> she's now moved into the Arts Center with her foul-mouthed parrot, Jasper, who is a gift from her boyfriend, Jake Westrup. We don't really get much about Jake's history, except that he's here. Um, he, he exists. He exists. Um, <laughs> she shows Quill her various painted collections and a ceramic face that was a gift from her grandmother that is her painting inspiration. It is, of course, covered in butterflies. Um, he mentions her to Polly later that day and comments on her elegant posture. And we learn that, of course, there is a boarding school in Lockmaster that stretches ballet and equestrian arts, <laughs> leading to excellent posture. Um, that being said, then Polly caps it off with, too bad she's not prettier. Oh. Wow. Really? Really? <laughs> cool then changes the subject and says, hey, would you be willing to sit for your portrait by a completely different artist? This is my gift. And she's suitably flattered and happy again. Heaven forbid Quill be looking at another woman for any reason whatsoever. Well, at this point also too, age-wise, I mean, he's in his 60s, we, right? we are We are pushing 60s now. So um, it's, it's less like... It, it's not cute. Well, it never was really cute. It was never really cute. But when you're mid-40s with a 20-year-old in the 60s, it was a little bit more normalized. Um, but now you're pushing 60 and, um, you know, you, you are so well known that you, there's, you, you really can't no. do anything without it being commented no, on. No, we, we can't all be Tony Randall. Uh, no, this is true. Um, Will has always been somebody that women find interesting. Yes. And women find time to want to spend time with him. Yes, it's true. So the next day we get uh, our favorite couple, the Rikers, who join Polly and Quill for brunch before Wonderful. the art center opening. Wonderful. Um, they spend some time in the new gazebo watching the wildlife. And we learn that Quill hates lawns because they require maintenance. And he's having Kevin Dune put in a wild grass meadow which will not need to be pruned, mowed, or fertilized. <laughs> and I cannot say I disagree. I was gonna say, this sounds familiar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hate lawns. I don't like being outside. I'm allergic to grass, I'm allergic to bugs, I'm terrified of bees. I mean, I, I don't like, I like looking 
at, I, I like looking at nature, but I don't like being out in it. Anyway, um, we also <laughs> learned about Hixie's latest idea to replace the poor ice festival from the last book, which was an utter debacle due to the, of course, early spring. Um, and this is an adult spelling bee. That you're going from uh, an ice festival to an adult spelling bee. Yep. Oh. Um, so we learned in the previous book that um, a prominent businessman in the community, that would be George Breeze, cannot read. So adult illiteracy is very pervasive in pickaxe. Oh. And as a fundraiser, this should go over very well. Um, regarding the Art Center opening, Polly shares a rumor that they are exhibiting nudes, to which Mildred, of course, <laughs> being uh, on the Arts Commission, uh, rolls her eyes and explains that life drawings are never included in public expositions because people complain about the dirty pictures. Um, they will, however, be included in a private members-only exhibition. This was the original OnlyFans. Yeah. <laughs> Cute. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so then we head over to the uh, Art Center for its opening. We meet the new staff and the various art teachers. There's a lot of discussion of Beverly Forfar's looks. Um, helmet hair, top heavy figure, and comparisons to Fran Brody, who has been out of town organizing the furniture for the soon to be reopened hotel, which features the furniture designs of Gustav Stickley. I will post some pictures on the blog. This um, is a real person. And this uh, Gustav Stickley, yes. Oh, I do. Oh, yeah, he's a he's a, an, an incredible designer. Sorry, both of you um, are looking at me like I'm crazy that no, I've never no, heard not, of. No, not crazy. Just you know, you you haven't had to, you haven't had cause to spend a lot of time uh, in the early arts and crafts um, furniture movement. I, so, well, no, I'm staying in the postmodern arts and crafts furniture <laughs> movement. Is what I'm doing. Now, did you know who Gustav uh, Stickley? Stickley? I had heard of it. Yes, I haven't seen much oh. of his stuff, but I had did know the name. Yeah. Okay. Strangely enough, it's actually very popular in Bend um, because of all the arts and crafts houses that we have. Those were all inspired mm -hmm. inspired by uh, Stickley's um, architecture designs mm -hmm. in the early 1900s. So anyway, moving on. Bit of local history for, there you go. for Susan and Terry. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing that surprised me as we're talking about um, this art center opening. Based on Beverly's reaction to mud, I would have guessed that she was an outsider who's come up to, uh, to, to move to Moose County. Apparently, though, she is a local. Uh, Mildred had her in art classes before she went down below to work in art galleries and then returned to Moose County after her divorce. Hmm. Um, and then other than a small disturbance with Jasper, the opening is a success and there are high hopes for the arts environment in Moose County. Wonderful. Uh, the next morning, Coco bugs Quill to take him for a walk on his leash and they wander down to the arts center where Quill discovers all the doors are open when they should be locked. Uh -oh. And further investigation reveals poor Jasper's cage. I mean, he may be foul mouthed, but he's still a living creature. Of course. Um, his cage has been knocked over with him still in it and there's blood on the floor. Oh no. The butterfly vase that Phoebe prized has been shattered. Um, and the small life study drawings have all been stolen. So all the nudes are missing. Um, apparently the large ones weren't easily portable, so they took all the small ones. Huh. Will calls it into the police and returns to the barn with Coco. Hmm. So clearly there was, there was no impetus on Quill's part there. It's all Coco. Right. Later that day, we meet the, uh, the interestingly named Culvert McBee, um, <laughs> whose mom bakes cookies and often has him deliver food to Mrs. Coggins to break up her rather plain diet. Today, he's delivering chicken soup. Hmm. Um, he has a spectacular vocabulary for a 10-year-old and Quill is suitably impressed. And this is also, I would like to note, one of the very few times that Lillian Jackson Braun is writing children with affection. We have mm -hmm. seen so many cases of her, you know, writing kids being either overly advanced or underly advanced, or they're all snotty brats. 
Um, and, and we don't really get any affection until she gets to Colbert. And for some reason, Colbert is being written like a favorite grandchild, um, which we can't actually confirm that she had. And so, then, so if this was an HBO uh, miniseries, Colbert's going to then die at the end of the book by those rules. Is that correct? No, he is not. <laughs> okay, Colbert good. survived. That's not what happens here. Yeah. Good. Um, I know this isn't HBO, but thank goodness. Just seen to watch too much of it to just assume. Oh, we're going to like this kid. He's yes. going to die. No, no, we're actually going to like this kid. Good. And Colbert uh, wants to be a photographer one day, and also takes pictures. He wants to try and take pictures of the cat sometime. Quill, by the way, thinks it would be hysterical if the kid, if the cats will pose for the kid <laughs> and not for Bushy, because he's still trying to get his picture. Oh, Bushy. Um, so later in a uh, phone call to Polly. Um, we get the return of Jealous Quill because Paul Scumble, the portrait artist, needs to paint in daylight. So Polly, of course, will be sitting for him on her weekends, which cuts into hers and Quill's private time for a few weeks. Oh, my. And Quill is very miffed. And he <laughs> moans about why he ever thought this was a good idea. And I can only say, because it will look nice and it will make her happy. <laughs> that, that's why you did it. Of course. Unfortunately, then he's distracted by the sounds of sirens near the end of his road. He runs out and sees smoke and flames. Is it the art center? No. It's the Coggin farmhouse with Maud inside. Oh, no. Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Thank you, Ron Burgundy. Yes. <laughs> so Quill at this point goes into full-on savior mode um, the next morning. He's arranging a full funeral, headstone, memorials in the something, including photographs by young Colbert McBee, who, who Quill gets points for this. He arranges to have the kid paid a full freelancer fee. And he may be nine, but he did the work. Wow. So that's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, and after completing all of that, it is swings by the art center mm -hmm. um, and sees Phoebe outside looking for her key. Quill has been given a spare by Mildred because he lives down the street and they wanted to be able to check on the building. And he loans her his spare and lets her into the building, but declines her offer to come in and say hello to Jasper. Um, instead, he walks down the road and invites Rollo McBee, Colbert's father, over for coffee to make sure he hasn't missed anything in regard to Maud. All right, I'm sorry, I just have to ask. Is it, do they say, it, this is not me being pedantic, just more curious, because I've always seen that name pronounced as Rollo. Maybe it is. I didn't know if you, if that's how they pronounced it in the uh, audiobook is what I was curious. I honestly don't know. I didn't listen that We long. may have to go back and clarify this on the blog, because uh, you say Rollo, that's a name I've heard, Rollo, I want candy. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll try and say Rollo, but I've always. <laughs> if, it, if it comes out that way, it's fine. You know, it's it's always the way that I pronounce it in my head. No, that's fine. It, I just, it may just be the right way to, it may be the right way to pronounce it. Who knows? I just I always know. heard it as uh, Rollo. Rollo. Okay, fair enough. But, interesting, but um, either way. Anyway, Rollo McBee is a volunteer firefighter and uh, worked until the early morning trying to get the fire out at the uh, Coggin Farmhouse. So convenient. he's also been a longtime neighbor and rented uh, Maud's farmland. And he reveals that Maud demanded cash for her hundred acres that she just sold uh, because she didn't think checks were real money. And knowing <laughs> that she didn't trust banks after the depression, Rollo thinks it's most likely that she buried the money. Hmm. Um, and so he's concerned that once uh, that, that once word of her death gets out, her farmhouse is going to be overrun with treasure hunters trying to oh. trying to dig up whatever she put the money in. Mm -hmm. oh, now, Coco helps out here because he starts licking one of Culvert's fo photographs, which draws their attention to a picture of Maud with a shovel and an old coffee can mm -hmm. by the outhouse. 
<laughs> like I said, Rollo's worried about treasure hunters, and Quill decides that it's best that he brings some lime from his barn to fill in the old outhouse to prevent it being a health hazard, of course. And, you know, if he happens to find a coffee can full of money while he's at it, well, at least it's not being found by treasure hunters. But um, he was honest about it. He absolutely he, was. He and gave they it to Quill. Perfectly reasonable explanation as to why he might have found it. So the next morning, Rollo stops back at Quill's barn to show him a coffee can sealed with friction tape. Uh, which Quill takes to his lawyer's office. Quill then runs into Weather, our, Weather Be Good, our favorite Joe Bunker, um, <laughs> and they arrange to have dinner. And because Quill is nosy uh, and something is going on with Chester Ramsbottom, he suggests that they have uh, that they have dinner at Chester Ramsbottom's barbecue joint. It's of course he has. A of course he has a barbecue joint. joint. Of course he yeah. does. So Joe Bunker agrees, but says he's going to have to change before they go because um, the day that they're planning, he's speaking to a garden club that afternoon and claims that anything dressier than a tank top looks suspicious at Chet's. <laughs> Not because of a saucy barbecue or anything. And no, it's just uh, it's just too nice. Um, he also wa- no. warns Quill to wear a hat um, and refers to it as a hats-on joint, which is a term we haven't heard in a while. Hmm. I've never, I'm not familiar with that term. Well, when they, in some of the very early books in Moose County, um, the cat who, uh, the cat who played Brahms and things like that, uh, when Roger's kind of taking him around town, he's describing something as a hats on or a hats on place. So you have hmm. hats on like foo where, you know, it, it's, it's dark and smoky and nobody cares. Um, and then you have things like the nasty pasty uh, <laughs> in Mooseville, which is places with a little bit of class and therefore you would take your hat off. Yes, nothing says class like nasty pasty. Yes. Well, at least everyone knows how to pronounce it with that. <laughs> so anyway, back to the law office. Quill and our and our favorite attorney, Bart, open the coffee can and find, in fact, $100,000 wow. in crisp bills. Quill and Rollo believe that it probably should have been four times that. Um, those 100 acres actually um, back up to the river. And uh, so this is literally riverfront property that she's selling for a fraction of what it's worth. So whoever bought this land took advantage of Maud's lack of awareness of uh, inflation and going land rates. Quill then continues to stir up interest in Maud's funeral and nearly makes the florist cry when he orders an arrangement from the dogs that Maud cared for. Oh, it's very sweet. It is very sweet. And Quill, of course, Quill can truly be a sap sometimes. He really can. And when he does, he goes full on. Um, our last stop is the local monument company where we meet one of the greatest names in Moose County, in my opinion, uh-huh. Thornton Haggis. <laughs> and I would like to point out that despite that name, he is actually finished. <laughs> the mine owner couldn't spell hero, Hekon, and put him down as Enos Haggis. And the family just kept it after that. Enos Haggis. Enos Haggis. That was his great grandfather. Um, <laughs> He is the original stonecutter, although his sons run the business these, day, these days, and he gives Quill a short history of stonecutter humor and lists some gravestone gems. Um, my personal favorite is the ultimate in his and hers, which is shot by her dear husband with a stone next to it reading, hanged for killing his dear wife. Uh, Thornton will, of course, do Maud Stone with her verbatim requested epithet, which is, of course, Maud Coggin. Worked hard, loved animals, mound her own business. <laughs> <laughs> and there is some discussion about mound as the uh, as the past tense of, of to have mind to mind to mind one's own business blah blah blah. Well, if you look up the old moose dictionary, that's the, exactly. that's what it will say. Well, yes. I, I believe the example he use he uses is you don't say I finded my watch and winded it. You say I found my watch and wound it. So using that logic. You mound your own business. You no, fair enough. You don't say 
Minded sounds weird. Mm-hmm. Mind and the English language is the jacked. English language is so weird. It's so anyway. jacked. Never mind. Okay. Anyway. So after all this lovely, uh, all this lovely interaction, Quill then decides to take Thornton to lunch at the hotel booze, um, where it's revealed that a country engineer has been celebrating that the county is going to get a piece of land to pay for parking their heavy vehicles, hmm. and that just happens to be the former site of the Coggan farmhouse. And there goes Quill's mustache. Uh, Quill's mustache and twitching. Um, it starts switching more when Thornton shares a not-for-publication story about the Coggins, because it turns out that Maud's husband, Bert, was a liquor runner during Prohibition and used to come by tombstones for, de- quote-unquote, deceased relatives. Mm. And then he'd hide the booze, the booze in the newly dug crate. Uh, thanks to the booze runners, though, Thornton and all his siblings went to college. <laughs> so, something to be thankful for. Obligatory. Who says crime mm-hmm. doesn't pay? <laughs> May not, you know, it certainly does. <laughs> All right, so we're back at the barn now, and mm-hmm. something is bothering Coco. He has shredded the front page of the something and has been making strange bleating noises. He's a lamb cat now. <laughs> um, Quill's mustache is tingling when he considers what he's learned planning Maud's funeral, which the funeral itself is described as very heartbreaking. Culvert brings all the old dogs. Um, it's, it's very sweet. And Quill starts looking into northern land improvement, which bought Maud's land, and he's already doubting their pledge to plant food crops and let Maud live rent-free for the rest of her days, because apparently she wasn't dying fast enough for their purposes. His fire looks super suspicious, and sudden rumors of the land being sold are even more so. Something's going on then. Exactly. Hmm. We go back to the Arts Center, where Quill has agreed to interview Phoebe um, about butterflies, and on his way in, he says hello to Beverly Forfar, who is if possible, even more of a pill than she was before, because she's complaining about the dogs at Maud's funeral, and that Jasper is still harassing visitors. So she is Moose County's Karen before that was even Clearly. a thing. And then the interview with Phoebe is odd. We learn a little bit about butterflies, and frankly, more about Phoebe. She's an only child whose parents want her to take over the drugstore, but she'd rather paint butterflies and move in with her boyfriend, whom, of course, they dislike. It is noted that it's very common in Moose County to complain that grown children will often live with their parents until they're married, and those that break the convention have to be prepared for some censure. Um, at 23, yeah. Phoebe thinks she's ready to make her own decisions, but Quill gives a solid piece of advice here. Um, he says it's not about being old enough to make the decision. It's, being, it's about being mature enough to live with the decision if things go wrong. Hmm. And of course, as 23-year-olds will do, Phoebe scoffs and says, you sound just like my dad. Which, considering that her dad is Quill's age, this is to be expected. I was going to say, we all have the answers when we're 23. Anyway. Uh, Anyway, moving on. Um, We're all nodding and not saying much else beyond that. I'll just point out to those who are not. We've all got our things. (laughs) Um, So that evening, Quill takes Hixie Rice, who is still working hard at something, um, takes her to dinner uh, at the Old Stone Mill, where we learn that our favorite six foot eight busboy, Derek Cuddlebrink, has been offered the manager's position at Chet's Bar and Barbecue, owned by none other than Chester Ramsbottom. This is concerning to Hixie and Quill because it means he won't finish school on time. But Derek thinks it'll look good on a resume. (laughs) According to Hixie, Chet's Bar and Barbecue has good food, but the place is a dump and the owner isn't above taking advantage of his workers. Um, Mm. That aside, what Hixie really wants from Quill is for him to be the word master for the adult spelling bee. Um, and she is not about bribing him with food to get it. And of course, Quill reluctantly agrees. Well, obviously. Now, I'm trying to remember the name of the police officer character, the, the kind of side one who reminds me an awful lot of Derek Cuddlebrink from Psych. The uh, real tall guy, dark hair. Lassie? No, Buzz. Oh, Buzz. Buzz. 
Derek reminds me an awful lot of Buzz. You know, just I think that's a really good description, actually. Very, just very lovable, always has his heart in the right place. It's wonderful when he shows up, but he's, bless him, he tries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at least Derek was smart enough to hook up with somebody with a giant trust fund. <laughs> good old Liz Hart. Anyway, so that evening, uh, Quill and uh, Joe Bunker finally head to Canada back to check out Chet's Bar and Barbecue, and it appears to be a slightly higher class version of the Hot Spot. Um, and is packed loud and smoky. Remember when you can smoke in restaurants? Smoking or none. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sitting at the bar while they wait for a table, the bartender chats with them. And the bartender happens to mention that he's being promoted to the manager soon. Because hmm. now somebody has their wires crossed. Because if Derek's been offered the job, who's not getting the job? Right. There's also an odd part of the decor that makes Quill's mustache twitch. In the midst of this smoky dive, Chester Ramsbottom has hung his oil painting paid for by the taxpayers in recognition of his 25 years of community service. Polly called that one um, and is appalled. Um, And then surrounding it are 10 watercolors of the local mine shafts, which are painted by a local named Duff Campbell. And it makes Quill wonder, why is he keeping this classy stuff in this dump? And that high up too. Well, I mean, it's it's hung where people can see it. That's the whole point. Well, true. Okay, this way was, anyway. Sorry, if if the description was bad, it was mine. Either way, either way though, yeah. Why are these paintings? Why are these nice paintings? Do what are they doing in a barbecue dump? Hmm. Um, but looking at the the uh, watercolors gives Quill an idea for a Quill pen. Um, the painter of the mine shafts, as I mentioned, is a local named Duff Campbell, and he is thrilled to be interviewed for the Quill pen. He lives in a scavenge boat on Purple Point. This is out where um, I want to say at one point the Rikers. Well, the Rikers got married. It's the Land Speaks house. That's where they got married. Ah. Okay. Um, Yes, that's, that's right. There is so much information. 20 books, and I'm trying to keep this all straight. Um, <laughs> I am very impressed. Doing my best. Do so. so we go and we meet Duff Campbell um, out on Purple Point, and Duff takes Quill to one of the mine shafts to demonstrate his watercolor techniques, which is really kind of a cool description. I never really knew how how you put together watercolors. It's different. I, you know, we've always seen, at least when we think of like assembling colors, we think of Bob Ross, but that's oil paintings. Yeah, exactly. So it's a bit different. So yeah, watercolors, it's, and it takes a long time for people to get comfortable with the the right amount of color. Color to water. Exactly. To how fast you're putting it on the page. Anyway, all of these things get discussed. It's really a lovely afternoon. And of course, Will manages to ruin that by mentioning (laughs) that the reason he was inspired to reach out to Duff was when he saw his paintings at Chet's, leading Duff to burst out with, he ruined my family oh, no. before ending the afternoon. Quill's mustache is tingling so hard. He, I, I'm surprised it doesn't jump off his face. Um, so he starts to review what he knows about Chester Ramsbottom, which is he's been known to buy votes. He accepts kickbacks. And there's clearly a scandal that has been suppressed and nobody's talking about. None of this is a clear reason for Duff's outburst. So now Quill is on the trail of the mystery. Um, and once again, he decides that our good friend Celia Robinson is probably his best bet. <laughs> she can, of course, innocently ask Lisa Compton, who knows everything about the old scandals, because she's a newcomer. No one would expect her to know. Of course. And of course. God, Quill. Celia's so good at this. Quill, you dog, you. Indeed. But, you know, <laughs> Celia is also useful because she can nose around the county buildings without arousing suspicion, which will help Quill figure out who is behind this Northern Land Improvement Trust, whatever it's called. So after assigning uh, Agent uh, 0013 and a half with her latest uh, with her latest assignment, your next case 0013 and a half. Um, <laughs> yes. Cool stops by the Arts Center. Beverly is celebrating because Jasper the parrot has finally left. Um, but now she's trying to get Phoebe to get rid of her butterfly larvae. What the heck is wrong with you, woman? Butterfly larvae don't take up any 
barely any space. They don't make noise. What's your problem? She really doesn't like animals. She, uh, clearly not. So Phoebe is relieved to have Jasper gone as well, especially since he's gone to live with Jake in his new condo in Indian Village. Now, if we've mentioned the Indian Village condos before, there's one thing that we should know about them. They're expensive. They're not well built, but they're, they're not, expensive. They're not well built, but they're expensive. Exactly. Um, and this is the odd thing. Um, she confirms that Jake didn't get the manager job. He's still tending bar. So how did he afford this uh, condo in Indian Village, which is where he's always wanted to live? Hmm. He got an inheritance from an uncle in Montana. That's not a super convenient, possibly a payoff for some nefarious deed. No, no, not at all. Not no. suspicious at all. No, no mustache tingles for this. No, no, not at all. Um, Phoebe is, of course, going to be moving into said apartment, um, but she's discovered there's a problem. Uh, Jake is squeamish about caterpillars, and somehow, with, with, with and, and somehow that plus Beverly's uh, admonition to get rid of the butterfly larvae, I and we find Quill playing midwife to a flock of butterflies to oh, be. Oh God. <laughs> soft-hearted man. Anyway, on the way out, he runs into Thornton Haggis, who mentions that he found one of the missing nudes in the possession of a bartender at the Shipwreck Tavern in Mooseville. Hmm. So whoever stole them has started selling them. And there's also a new rumor about the, uh, the about the county paving at the former Coggin Farm, which will negatively impact the Arts Center, which is very similar to what they heard from Gary Pratt um, when they were hearing about the, the guy from the county saying they were going to have a place for their heavy vehicle. Hmm. Um, frankly, Quill puts it best when he's like, Good Lord, she can't stand the mud. Imagine what she'd do once they park those vehicles across the street. Um, <laughs> at this point, Quill has a theory um, and he is convinced that XYZ Enterprises is behind it and blames Don Exbridge, whom he claims he's never liked, which is not entirely true. I was going to say, that doesn't sound back entirely... in the Back in the early days, you know, before before the Breakfast Island fiasco, he, he had nothing really bad to say about Don Exbridge. Um, after Breakfast Island, mm-hmm. now he's just enemy number one as far as Quill's huh. concerned. I didn't like Don. I, I hated Don Exbridge from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. After that, we are back at the something office. And unfortunately, we find Hixie in a panic. So the adult spelling bee has 10 business sponsors, but no one can get their employees to join the teams. Hmm. Now, with some nu- mental nudging from Coco, who was sitting on a history of baseball, Quill comes up with the idea of a spell game treating it like a baseball game. <laughs> this is complete with team jerseys, hats, scorecards, the mayor pitching out the first word in a world series of spelling against Lockmaster later in the year. Um, Hixie is thrilled and suddenly everyone is just on board with the spell game and they are jumping, <laughs> they are jumping to be spellers and celebrity spellers and everything. It's really kind of adorable. <laughs> and after, um, a- after sharing this great idea, who runs into our good friend, Liz Hart, on her on his way back to the barn and she kind of agonizes to call about Derek's change in jobs you know she already doesn't see much of him between the late hours and his classes and she's really not thrilled about the lack of class in a barbecue joint Hmm. but she has a little bit of realism when she says he's an adult she can't tell him what to do Hmm. um she however is also a little bit more indignant more than a little indignant about how the bartender's girlfriend whom Derek knows as monkey and we know as phoebe um because of course the bartender is jake um, huh. that Phoebe likes to hang around talking to Derek late into the night. Gee, how fun for how fun for the girlfriend who's waiting at home. Um, later in the week, we get a little bit of a sidetrack here um, because Quill gets a call from Larry Dansbeek and Pender Wilmot, who we haven't heard of 
uh, in several books ever since he moved out of uh, his Goodwinter Boulevard mansion. Okay. Because um, remember, he had the little kid and the uh, and the dirty white and orange cat named oh. uh, named OJ. Yeah. Yes. 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 He was a bit of a snot, so we didn't really miss him when he left. <laughs> um, but they come over to discuss a movement, and it's a movement about for natural landscaping rather than lawns. Um, it should be mentioned that both these men live in the very fashionable middle hummocks um, where Chester Ramsbottom <laughs> has recently bought a house. This is the high class enclave of Moose County and Chester Ramsbottom is spearheading a lawn movement, which is horrifying to naturalists like Pender and Larry. Um, Chester is also advocating straightening and paving roads for which you'd get a kickback. And of course, this is on par with his habit of opposing any and all school improvements or cultural projects to save the taxpayer money, knowing full well that the cave fund can jump in and underwrite whatever he opposes. So win-win on his, as far as he's concerned, as a politician. <laughs> Pender and Larry want full support for an anti-lawn movement, which he says he'll think about after talking with Kevin Dune, of course, because he really knows absolutely nothing about this. He just does whatever Kevin tells him to do. Um, anti-lawn movement. Interesting. You know? Pender keeps talking about his kids saying, daddy, they're spraying again because of all the chemicals. And, you know, at one point they're describing that they have to spray paint, these people have to spray paint their lawns to keep them green, which is odd considering how much liquid they've had. Um, I, I would think the lawns would have washed away in the <laughs> flooding, um, especially if they were new, um, because if they don't have time to put down roots, they will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. That's my, that's my sidetrack of also why lawns are a bad thing. Um, so I, I'm with Pender and Larry on this one. Um, later that night, Quill finally gets Polly alone for dinner and he takes her to the Palomino paddock down in Lockmaster because, you know, if you only get one night, you get better make it a good one. Um, then Quill spots Chester Ramsbottom and with, as he tells Polly, malice aforethought, he approaches Ramsbottom and his young female companion, by the way, Ramsbottom has a wife. Um, that, this is not his wife. Um, and Quill asks him for an interview about his years of public service, which all very firmly with tongue in cheek. Ramsbottom refuses to be interviewed and tells Quill to see him in an election year. At this point, Quill retreats, but his nosiness is not remotely satisfied. Um, also, nothing would make you look more suspicious than refusing to be interviewed by the country's most by the county's most popular journalist. To say the country's most popular journalist. All right, fine. Uh, just the <laughs> county then. <laughs> The region, the state. Yeah, whatever. Within uh, 400 miles. Within 400 miles, Quill is the most popular guy around, which makes yes. sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the next day, Quill stops by the drugstore for a newspaper and has a brief encounter with Phoebe's mother, who is worried about her daughter's choice of boyfriends, um, something we have to look forward to later in life. Um, yep. <laughs> and from the way she's talking, I really have to say, I do think that Phoebe's mother would be less worried about Phoebe's artistic ambitions if Jake the boyfriend weren't in the picture. Mm. Um, Quill does his best concern uncle act and even solves a problem with the pharmacy being short of spellers. You see, they're spelling as the, as the pills. That's their team That's name. their team name, they're the, the pills. pills. Um, and they're short of speller because Phoebe's spelling for the art center. And he ah. suggests that they ask Lyle Compton to spell for them since he's already a pill. <laughs> Our favorite crotchety uh, superintendent of schools. The, the, the gag cheers up Miss Sloan considerably and Lyle is of course happy to do anything um, for, for charity. Later at the barn, um, Bushy subs by to report another break-in at the arts center. Um, this, time, this time Bushy is personally concerned because this person used the photography equipment from the click club 
they, whatever their camera club is called, um, and left cigarette butts and beer cans in the wastebaskets. Mm. I would like to point out they left them in the wastebaskets. That's impressive for, for people just kind of wandering in. <laughs> and they're not, un, you know, they're not slobs. They're, they yes. may be thieves, but, but they're, they're not, not slobs. Beverly is apparently apoplectic um, and clearly not upset, but clearly not upset enough to insist on changing the building locks because the reason this keeps happening is because there are simply way too many keys floating around, mm. um, including a privilege key for members. So anyone can sign this key out. Um, in other sidetrack news, Bushy thinks he may have found a, a vintage lens that uh, uses mirrors to, uh, to photograph the cats. Um, there's a language here that's uh, a sideline about primitive cultures claiming photographers would say claiming photographers would steal their souls. So this lens was it was designed to photograph people without their knowledge. Hmm. Wow, there's a lot of colonialism to unpack in that phrase. Um, it's yeah, yeah, that's bad. Um, but it might, but this, this vintage lens might help them get a picture of the cats without them, without them completely losing their minds. <laughs> um, so of course, after this, Quill checks in at the arts center and finds Beverly is predictably upset. And Phoebe, however, is uncharacteristically quiet. Additionally, instead of her usual bare arms, she's wearing the arts center smock, which has long sleeves. Quill starts to wonder what is she covering? Hmm. Um, he learns that she and Jake had moved into the quote-unquote classy Birch's condo in Indian Village. Um, same crappy construction, but gold faucets and marble countertops. Wow. That gets him thinking because then he realizes who her neighbors are. We have the Rikers on one side, um, and then the other two units in the building are filled with Susan Exbridge, who owns the antique store, and Amanda Goodwinter. Ah, Let's just say ah. um, she, they could not get three fussier neighbors. So Quill makes a plan to ask all of them about their new neighbors. Um, back at the barn, Celia has made a delivery of meat pies and reports the news that the Coggin Farm is not owned by whatever Northern Land Improvement is, but by Margaret Ramsbottom. So Quill was wrong. XYZ is not behind defrauding Mog Coggin. It's Shady Chester Ramsbottom instead. And he's used the classic technique of buying something and putting it in his wife's name for tax purposes. <laughs> oh. Quill then attempts to share this news with the McBees, but they're at a funeral, which is not pleasant. Um, and then he tries to call Bart, his lawyer, but his lawyer's in Chicago on K-Fund business. So this is getting frustrating. And Coco is just sitting on a book. Um, and this book happens to be The Birds Fall Down, a book about belief, betrayal, and coming of age. But what does it mean? Of course it means something. Of course it means something. <laughs> um, later, Quill visits Arch, Susan, and Amanda to ask about their new neighbor and learns that the Rikers haven't heard anything, but Susan has complained to the management three nights running, running about the loud music at 3 a.m. and the birds squawking at all hours. And Amanda called the sheriff. Hmm. <laughs> Added commentary about Amanda. Um, she mentions that Margaret Ramsbottom, Ramsbottom was a nice woman with no idea how she lives with Chester. And they didn't hesitate to pay her design bill when she did his new house in the hummocks. Um, after that uh, fact-finding mission, um, he, he heads home, Quill head, heads home and he runs into Celia who gives him a tape recording of her talk with Lisa Compton um, with instructions to destroy it after he listens to it. But he doesn't have time to listen to it because he has to be at the spell game for a warm-up. Um, Hixie is a kindly drill sergeant, and despite Phoebe running late, the whole event runs smoothly. <laughs> Too smoothly. Oh. Back of the barn, Quill listens to Celia's tape. Good dry run. Good bad, dry, yeah, bad Good dry run, good rehearsal, bad performance. Yep. So it turns out, according to Celia's tape, 
Ramsbottom was accused of watering the liquor and put the blame on his bartender, a Broderick Campbell, who was working two jobs to support his wife and three young children. The family was shocked when Broderick confessed to the crime, but instead of prison, Ramsbottom got the sentence commuted and Broderick left the county with his family. Because of this, his parents died of shame. His mother had a heart attack and his father committed suicide. For watering the drinks? For, for him, you know, being charged with watering the drinks. Yes, he wasn't honest. My son wasn't honest. I can't live with that. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, there's there's a whole that. conversation in there oh. about how, you, you know, after a certain point, you are not responsible for your children's choices. Um, anyway. How, yeah, how, if he was working at a bar, he's of age. Well, he has a wife and three kids. So, yeah. The man's made his choices. Um, then a cousin goes down below and they find Broderick running his own motel with, and flush with cats, with cash, cash. Um, Is anyway. he flush with cats too? Are there a bunch of cats <laughs> running around? Cat motel. Um, anyway, <laughs> so basically he's, he's living out his dream um, that he'd never have been able to afford. And Lisa's best guess is that he took the rap in exchange for a major payoff to start a new life down below. During all of this, Coco is still bleating hmm. like a ram. Ram's uh, bottom. Ba ram you. Ba ram you. <laughs> anyway, that movie is still so cute. Um, if I had words. Anyway. <laughs> so the next day, Liz reports to Quill that Jake, the bartender, has been fired from Chet's. Um, but Derek doesn't know why. Hmm. Uh, Quill doesn't have time to ponder why he might have been fired because the something is now reporting that the cemetery is expanding with a memorial park to be found on the former Coggin land, which according to Amanda is going to cost the city 6,000 an acre. Um, I, by the way, didn't bother to do a, uh, didn't bother to do a conversion on, um, on, on what that would be in today's money because the answer is a lot. Um, Amanda, by the way, voted against uh, buying the land. Um, she also thinks that it's possible that Ram she Amanda is is very blunt and thinks it's possible that Ramsbottom burned down the Coggin farmhouse to speed things along. Hmm. Um, Thornton Haggis, having worked in uh, Memorial Stones for as long as he has, does not think that the locals will appreciate the uh, proposed changes to this memorial park. Um, he claims that everyone just wants a good old Celtic cross to, uh, or a stone bench to sit at and think on um, instead of stones that can be mowed over. Hmm. Having walked in the historic cemetery that's near our house, I really have to say it's the part of the cemetery where the stones are, are, are raised up where you can actually see them and, and go looking for them is, is a much more interesting part of the cemetery than the big grassy almost field that's down at the south end where right. everything's where you can mow over it. Well, you can mow over it and everything's sunken in. Yeah, it's just, again, the whole idea of lawn care. Yeah, exactly. Why lawn care is more important than people's uh, need to grieve. Um, but of all of this, the person who's most upset and has the right to be is the McBees. Because they've they've already paid their rent for the next quarter, and they're apparently being kicked off the land without a without being refunded. Oh, so not good. Um, Rollo also has some news. As I mentioned before, he's a volunteer firefighter and knows that when someone is killed in the fire, the chief has to report the death to the state fire marshal. There's a new chief in Pickaxe, and Rollo is pretty sure Maud's death wasn't reported, especially since the new chief is Ramsbottom's brother-in-law. <laughs> Will is adding this to his very long list of things to report to Bart and literally as soon as the guy is back from Chicago. This, yeah, so the, this is looking highly suspicious. Exactly. But first, the spell game. And 
at, with, things are starting out okay, but there's a problem. Phoebe Sloan is missing. Um, and of course they prepared for this. They had a selection of, of local celebrities who could pinch spell. Pinch spell. Of course. Um, <laughs> and, they, and they managed to collect Dr. Prelegate, who is the, of course the president of the new community college. And he pinched spells for the art center. To balance that drama, nine-year-old Covert McBee is pinch spelling for the farmer's team. And while the college president spells cat, Culvert correctly spells anti-disestablishmentarianism. Of course. Of course he does. It's adorable. This, this is Putnam County spelling bee all over again. <laughs> for those who are unfamiliar, uh, it's an actual, it's a musical about a spelling bee, obviously, but uh, audience members get pulled up and they become spellers as well, including one poor sap who gets to spell cow. <laughs> Guess who got to play that part when he went to go see it at a friend's at a for a friend's performance up in Brighton. Yep. <laughs> Spell cow. Can I use it in a sentence? Can you please uh, define it? It's a cow. <laughs> Can you please use it in a sentence? Spell cow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Quill uh, Quill does very well as the um, as the spellkeeper, and afterwards he is presented with a gift in recognition of his willingness to support every community endeavor even if it means judging a cat contest, because let's not forget what happened when they tried to do oh. the tipsy look-alike contest oh, and yes. looked back. It wasn't pretty. Um, his gift is a recumbent bicycle. Oh. Since he claims that he does his best thinking with his feet up or while biking, so now he can do both at the same time. And it should be mentioned that this, uh, that this, the, uh, the spell game, the, just this first event, raised over $10,000 for literacy efforts here in Pickaxe. That's fantastic. So, excellent, yay, very exciting. Um, but as he's loading this bike into his new van, um, Sarah Plensdorf, who is the office manager at Something, stops him with news of Phoebe, who apparently spent the previous night in Sarah's guest room um, with a suspiciously swollen eye after, quote unquote, forgetting her key and not knowing when Jake would return. Hmm. This is the walk into the door. I was going to say, did she walk into a doorbell or did yeah. she, she fall into a uh, fall? On, she tripped? Yeah. When Sarah returned from work later that day, Phoebe was gone with no note, which is odd. Um, but when Quill gets home, there's a letter with a butterfly in the return address. Uh-oh. And with this, he's going to be at Bart's office first thing in the morning with a story of fraud, bribery, arson, and murder. So he tells Bart's <laughs> wife on the phone, um, who's waiting, who's still waiting for him to get in. She's like, he's, he's not going to be up, in the, up that early. And Quill's like, no, 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 he's going to be up that early. <laughs> and so the next morning, Quill lays this out for Bart. The fake company bought Maud's land, put the property in Margaret Ramsbottom's name, and once Maud was dead, they started planning to sell and rent the property at premium prices. This is technically not illegal, but definitely immoral. Um, he then reports that the, the McBee's suspicion that Maud's death was not reported by Ramsbottom's fire chief brother-in-law, which is just suspicion, but combined with Phoebe's letter, there's definitely probable cause for investigation. Mm -hmm. In Phoebe's letter, Phoebe reveals that Jake was the one who spray painted Maud's barn to, uh, with the word witch to scare Maud. Um, he then admits to stealing Phoebe's key to the art center, stole the new drawings, um, and then got bitten by Jasper, which he richly deserved at that point. Um, Phoebe found the drawings and returned them. Um, and when he found this out, Jake apparently lost it. And this is when he started hitting her. Um, yeah, she later um, overheard him asking Chet for more money one night at the bar. And by eavesdropping, she discovers that Jake's the one who torched the Coggin farmhouse and now wants more money from Chet's XYZ deal. 
Um, Quill did guess correctly that XYZ is getting a deal off of um, off of the land, but not that mm -hmm. uh, XYZ uh, had the land in the first place. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Phoebe is 23 and not always conscious of when it's probably safer to keep your mouth shut. Um, why she should have to, I, I don't believe she should have, but unfortunately, Jake gets home, they get in a fight, and she yells at him that she knows where the money came from, came from, Ooh. and she gets a black eye for her trouble, which is when she runs to Sarah and then plan to go to her grandmother. She mentions uh, stopping to get her clothes before she leaves, and as I'm reading this, I haven't read this book in a, I hadn't read this book in a while, and I'm reading this and thinking, oh no, this is not going to end well. Um, number one, she didn't leave a note for Sarah. She because she thinks she's just going to go get her clothes and then head off to her grandmother's. Um, and it turns out I was nervous with good reason because Phoebe is found dead uh. in a single car accident at the appropriately named Bloody Creek Bridge, which, by the way, is also where Senior Goodwinter died. Jeez. Quill doesn't believe that she ran the car off the road and tells Bart that the coroner will likely find that she was killed before she even entered the car because, as he correctly points out, she didn't know that Jake had been fired and would be in the condo when she stopped by for her clothes. Already violent, knowing she knows too much, it's more likely Quill thinks that he, that Jake killed her, strapped her into the car, and rolled it off the bridge. Yeah. And the coroner confirms it. Jake has been arrested for murder because it turns out Amanda Goodwinter hurt the fight and will provide evidence of time of death. Um, so Jake is up the creek on that one. All that remains is to see if Jake takes Ramsbottom down with him. Coco is still bleeding, but he has kind of gotten through with his book fascination. Um, the author of The Birds Fall Down, it's by an author named Rebecca West. And Jake's last name is Westrup. Ah, There's a connection there. Yeah. Um, that being said, Coco's not done. He convinces Quill somehow to go for a moonlight walk to the art center, where Quill, where Quill once again finds an open door and being Quill, goes to investigate where he's nearly killed by Jake, who has escaped custody and is hiding in the basement. Oh. Fortunately, Coco's responses, Coco's responses are better and his claws are practiced at ripping skin at this point. <laughs> so Quill gets to hold Jake until the police arrive and take him into custody now that his face has been completely scratched up. And now with that all settled, the butterfly notes go into the trash. Polly's portrait is revealed to great acclaim. Beverly resigns to take a nice quiet job in a museum down below, and all of Ramsbottom's deals from Maud Coggins' land have fallen through, and the land is put up for sale to cover his legal fees. Foreshadowing our next adventure, though, Mildred predicts that it will be a good summer for UFOs. That's a story for next time. As Alton Brown would say, but that's another episode. <laughs> the curtain falls, and hopefully that... I, I, have, I have a comment uh, as we wrap up about the... Uh, the author's name that Coco was hiding. That, yes. That's a bit of a stretch. It's, there, there's also a thing about Coco, um, you know, drawing the, uh, drawing the point of a compass to mm -hmm. the West. It's not, it's not a good connection. <laughs> this is- Sorry, that's just, that, that's just not, not strong enough. Yeah, not the cat's finest hour, I'd say. No, no, yeah. but Daisy's been working at this for a while. Yeah, and you know, I, there are only so many, there are only so many ways that you can, poke it at, 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 at the stupid human and get them to do what you want them the to do. The bleeding's ram, the bleeding ram, the bleeding meow yeah. too is a bit. <laughs> That's a bit of a stretch. But on the other hand, it's it's easy. Cats can sound like sheep. So I I, I buy that one. Well, cats can, yeah, I, why not just have it that the cat was doing this, doing <laughs> the headbutt thing that cats always do. Oh. Sorry, it was that. It was right on the bone. That hurt. I, I, I had, and for those listening, I had butted my wife a little <laughs> bit too hard. I was trying to be affectionate and ended up causing pain. <laughs> Anyway, I'm a monster. Moving on. All right. So 
Mom, have you read this book? Before? Yes. I hadn't, I don't remember reading it before, but I found it really interesting to read it with the idea we we're going to talk about it. One of the things that is interesting is that Coco was fascinated with the crows. Yes. And then somebody talks to Quill about writing a play about crows. So that's yes. something that may come back to us in the future. It may come back to haunt us. Who knows? That's actually the next book. The, crow, um, the crows have eyes? No. That's the crow inning, thank you. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, but yes, the, the, the crow story does come back. It, it'll be in the cat who uh, the, the cat who saw stars. We'll talk about that uh, with our with our wonderful friend Meg Ralph in a couple of weeks. Um, so then you can get the summary from that. Have to listen, find yeah. out what happens but to with the play about crows. I can't imagine a play about crows, but that's okay. And, and I don't live in Moose County. Yes, there, there, there's a lot of back and forth on this whole crow idea. Um, and we also get to meet, um, in said moment, we get to meet uh, Joe Bunker's cousin, Tess. She's a corvidologist. Corvidol, oh. She studies crows. <laughs> okay. Anyway. It should all work. Yes. So You find a passion, you never work a day in your life, I guess. Lies, lies. <laughs> um, but, you know, the work is a little bit easier because you love what you do. No, exactly. And she loves crows, apparently. There you go. All right, so back to mm -hmm. this book. Um, so one thing that fascinated me is that Quill has come a long way since uh, since the um, the cat who played post office, where he was complaining about the price of a trail bike, um, because as he mentions, he's now riding a vintage Fanet Silverlight, circa 1950, that I'm going to assume that he paid a bundle for after seeing it advertised in a bike magazine. Because I looked up this bike and found it running about twenty eight hundred dollars in twenty fifteen, which is wow. last it, you know you can find them, but they're even more expensive now. So he had to pay at least a thousand dollars for this bike back in nineteen ninety eight. They you know they were they were designed by uh, Fanet was inspired by aircraft design. The bike's described as being super light; you can lift it with one finger. It's a very cool design, um, and I will have pictures of this up on the blog, but. Um, yeah, we've come a long way since complaining that $100 is too much for a trail bike. <laughs> He's getting used to having money. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. true. And um, I'm going to be interested in him seeing him ride through town on his recumbent bike, yes. too. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so speaking of the recumbent, um, Quill is also very excited in this book because he's found a source for his beloved, quote unquote, fat yellow pencils with soft lead, which doing some research, I tried it down. These are actually the Dixon Ticonderoga number one pencils, not the number oh. two pencils that we used in school. These are the Dixon Ticonderoga number ones. And these are what he likes to use when he drafts his column longhand with his feet up. Because of course he claims that this position is ideal for creative thought. I'm not sure what help the pencils are, but to each their own. Well, I can, it's, hmm, I don't know. I, I thought I had an idea, but when I think about it, it doesn't make sense because if it's the softer lead, it's going to break easier. So, or it doesn't break easier because it's soft. Because it's soft, so it's like it's eventually like writing with a crayon. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Maybe so. Yeah. Because then, if it's it's that way, maybe it's less. You're you're less apt to break the tip of the pen. That actually that's is very true. Not going to lose your train of thought, but I. I always get the numbering of pencil mixed up as far as which one's actually firmer versus which one's actually more brittle, yes. uh, not brittle, but is going to have more give to it. Yes. So, um, I mentioned another audio moment in this book because this has one of my favorite silly scenes in this entire series. 
Um, as the art center is opening, uh, they are raffling off two pieces of artwork um, for fundraisers. One is a Duff Campbell watercolor shaft house. The other is a white on white intaglio called the whiteness of white. <laughs> An intaglio, by the way, is the opposite of a relief. The art is cut into the surface of the, of the base and then ink fills in the cuts. So rather than being raised above the surface like a relief, it is sunk in. Hmm. Um, Quill notices that nobody's buying tickets for the intaglio, so he buys five because he feels bad for the artist. <laughs> and he signs his tickets, Ronald Frobnitz, his favorite go-to fake name. Ronald Frobnitz. Yes. Of course he wins the damn thing <laughs> because nobody else bought tickets. Um, and it should be mentioned that later he manages to get rid of it by gifting it to Beverly Forfar when she leaves to go down below because, of course, he doesn't want the dang thing. Um, and she wants it. She thinks she it's wonderful. She's thrilled. She is yeah. absolutely thrilled about mm-hmm. this. So, but what I love is that Quill has what he considers a Frobnitzian voice. Frobnitzian voice. Frobnitzian voice. So I've got um, a, uh, I've got an audio clip of the interaction with Beverly, and I just, I have to play this for you all, so you can hear Quill's idea of a Frobnitzian voice. Three, two, one. She asked to speak to Ronald Frobnitz. One moment, please, he said, covering the mouthpiece while he experimented with a Frobnitzian voice. After a suitable interval, he said with an adenoidal twang, Frobnitz speaking. Mr. Frobnitz, we have wonderful news for you. This is the Art Center calling, and you're the lucky winner of that magnificent intaglio by W.C. Wyckoff. Congratulations. This is too good to be true, he said nasally. I've never won anything in my life. Are you sure there isn't some mistake? Oh, I assure you, it's a fact, and you'll be happy to know it's valued at a thousand dollars. That's something you'll need to know for insurance purposes. Are you a local resident? I don't believe we've met. Her voice was ingratiating, and it was difficult to connect it with her forbidding row of bangs, but Quillerin was not in the least confounded. A master of glib prevarication, he replied with less than a second's hesitation, I'm from San Francisco, visiting relatives here, and I just happened to attend your celebration. I recognize the intaglio as a superlative piece of work, never imagining I'd have the good fortune to own it. <laughs> and that's a Frobnitzian voice. Well, I just have to say that's quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly at one point, though, it's very clear that the uh, that the audiobook author is speaking into his hands to get more nasal sound, <laughs> which is fun. No, that's, that's wonderful. So again, that's one of my favorite just random little moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so this book also has a lot of interesting little moments. Um, the start of the book, there's a bit of a kerfluffle for the newspaper because Quill was assigned to cover the new computerized collection at the Goodwinter Farmhouse Museum. And he does so rather tongue in cheek. He lists the number of cups of tea drunk in his report. Yeah. Um, and there is no byline. His non-reporting of a non-story so enrages the new manager of the museum that they tried to demand the author be fired immediately, leading to great hilarity in the newsroom because you can't fire the man who basically owns the paper, nor in this case, would you want to. Oh, by the way, he's also responsible for the donation that, that allowed you to have this new computerized catalog. Not going to happen. Yep. Gary Pratt, 
uh, our favorite uh, our favorite owner at the uh, at the hotel booze is known for his rather distinctive uh, grizzled mustache and beard. But it should be pointed out in this book, he has shaved. Oh my! Because he's getting married and he's cleaned up his normally shaggy beard for the wedding. Sadly, he is not marrying any of the main cast. He is marrying the owner of the local marina. Um, apparently their marriage contract very clearly states that he won't tell her how to run the marina and she won't tell him how to run the hotel booze. <laughs> Which, to be fair, if you are two business owners going into marriage, that's probably not a bad thing to spell probably, ahead of time. Yeah. Good idea to stay out of each other's business. Right. They, uh, they Clearly, they both have something that works for them for what they're doing for their own business. Exactly. So let's just let that go on. Yes. Um, we do have a bit of a crisis for Celia here. Her son's wife uh, leaves and divorces, uh, and divorces her son. And her son decides that he wants his mother to come back down below to keep house for him and care for Clayton. Hmm. Problem is, as one can easily tell within five seconds of reading anything about Celia, she loves her life in pickaxe and she's apparently even talking marriage with Mr. Odell. Oh my. Um, Quill once again plays the concerned uncle and he gives her again some very solid advice to live her life because she's already done her part for her family and that her son can hire a housekeeper. <laughs> it's true. Mm-hmm. Another big thing about this book is as Quill has gone through the writing of the Quill pen, he has frequently attributed his ability to write a thousand words on any subject to his 10th grade English teacher, who he remembers as Mrs. Mrs. Fisheye. Um, he finally writes her a very long overdue tribute to her teaching as a preface to a column on the egg. And it turns out that Mrs. Fisheye is still alive. Real name, Martha Snyder. And of course, she is a reader of the something via her daughter who lives in Lockmaster. Of course. She is honored to be recognized and reads his column via her caretakers as she is now blind with great enjoyment and is proud of the work that she's done with him. <laughs> so it's, I, 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 I have said in earlier parts of the series that when Lillian Jackson Braun talks about teachers, she writes them like gods. She is very aware of the impact that a good teacher can have. And this is one of the crowning moments of that particular idea. There, I've noticed in the last couple of books, Lillian Jackson Braun apparently loves the word chiaroscuro, which is the play of light and shadow on an uneven surface. She's used it at least in the last <laughs> two books and probably before then to describe the play of light in various scenes. But it's it's such a specific word about an even play of light. It, it's descriptive, but it's also kind of a, a, a bit um, snotty. Uh, uneven, it's... This is a bit of a stupid uh, thing, but how I know what this word is as soon as I saw it in the notes is like, oh, of course, it's about uneven lighting and drawings. There is a flash cartoon called Strong Bad where they're drawing dragons and he draws a very simple dragon. Then there's his dopey brother that draw. Oh, yeah, I think I improved on your methods. I involved some chiaroscuro lighting and I think it really brought out some definition. And then he takes out a lighter and burns the drawing. So that's the only, I always just remember chiaroscuro lighting from that. You, the things you retain mm -hmm. and the places you get them. All right. So we've got a couple of signs of the times. The biggest one being that the library is bringing in the electric card catalog mm. and the older patrons are protesting. 
including a demonstration where they burn the library cards in a port portable barbecue and carry signs saying down with computers. Oh, um, hilariously, this is uh, this is a non-issue because apparently all the all the patrons are getting issued new plastic cards. The cards <laughs> saving them a step. Um, saving them a step. But apparently Quill has come quite a ways since his previous declaration a few books ago that computers may not be here to stay. Um, and now says we have to just all roll with the times. Paper um, library cards. Do you remember a paper library card? I do card? remember a paper library That's, card. Yeah, it's it's just weird to think that that because everything now is plastic or it's laminated. Yeah. Like right off the bat. Yeah, but my very first library I remember when you used to have to go to the card file to find a book. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing They're they've eliminated, you know, they're, they're introducing the uh, electronic catalog, which I also remember when they did, because when I first started going to the library far too young, um, I, you know, there was the card catalog. I you remember say that even, like, you say that like it's a kid who's like, you know, when I was juggling knives far too young, <laughs> it's like not a bad thing true, to go to true. a library um, early. But I think the funny thing is that in middle school, because computers were so new, they hadn't actually computerized, they, they, they wouldn't allow access to the electronic card catalog. So they were still keeping the physical card catalog in middle mm -hmm. school. So we were all taught to use the card catalog. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, cause I remember seeing the card catalog, but I never used it. It, once it got to uh, the public library because my high school, I, my middle school and my high school both happened to be attached to public branches of Jefferson County Library. And so when I was in Which middle school- Which is a smart way school, to do it, by the way, instead of having a separate yeah. school library, it's just attached mm -hmm. to the public Oh, library. it was fantastic because after school, the library would be open until at least uh, seven o'clock. And there'd be some times when I would miss the bus or it would just be easier for my mom to come pick me up. Uh, as opposed to taking the bus and I would just hang out in the library. Nice. And so, but they never had the card system there. I remember seeing it at the other branches, the library, but I never used it, but we, we never had the card system ourselves. It was all electronic by the time I got to middle school myself. Hmm. So. Interesting indeed. I think part of it, like you said, being smart, maybe to just make it more simplified or current or consistent, keeping it so that way the public library and the school library all eliminated the card system. Yes. Well, you know, at least then you didn't have to have the typewriter so that you could type up a new card for the catalog. <laughs> That's very true. All right. And finally, we have cats will be cats. Um, I mentioned Coco bringing a new meaning to the term animal magnetism uh, because he manages to pull the point of a compass west to try and uh, clue Quill into that Jake Westrip connection. Still doesn't work, but it's a funny scene of him actually putting his nose next to the compass and drawing oh, it geez. away from north. Um, <laughs> So, and the other thing about cats will be cats, the library is saved by two rescue cats who managed to win over the alienated volunteers. The, uh, they are found in Quill's sea chest, um, ab abandoned, and he brings them to the library and says, this, is, this will solve your problems. And he's absolutely right. <laughs> um, everybody votes for the new names for the library cats and the winning names are Macintosh to be known as Mac and Katie. Aw. Very sweet. Very sweet. Alrighty. Speaking of cats, as we have our paw ratings. Our final, our, our final thoughts, the, uh, the paw ratings. Okay, I give this book three paws. I think it's a little convoluted. The town conflicts really overshadow the mystery. And I really wish that we had heard more about Phoebe and her butterfly paintings before this book, because I feel like she's just been strung, sprung on us as an audience. And it's really mm -hmm. hard to care about her story because we haven't gotten to know her like we have some other characters. Mm -hmm. um, Beverly Forfar, by the way, is also totally wasted as potential villain. villain. 
or at least an antagonist. And that does make me sad because she's so well-written and so interesting that I just wish we'd had a little bit more time to watch her, you know, try and fight City Hall, such as it were. <laughs> interesting. Now, what are your thoughts on that, Terry? I, you're right. She could, just comes and goes. And I'm kind of hoping that she'll come back later on to visit or something and, and instigate some sort of a situation. <laughs> Especially since she took the good painting. Yeah, exactly. Mm, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So what are your yeah. thoughts on a Paul rating? I, I agree with you. There's some things that just kind of pop in from out of nowhere. And, uh, and it's interesting. There's a comment uh, about uh, a truck getting, having a problem and all sorts of animals getting out. And all the animals were collected except one. And I'm wondering if that one animal was the cause of Phoebe's car accident. Well, well remember, that, Phoebe, remember Phoebe didn't actually have a car accident. Well, yeah, they put her in that's the car true. and rolled her off the bridge yeah. after he'd already killed her. But what happened to that cow? I don't remember what happened to the cow. We oh, didn't find the cow. There's just a poor cow wandering yeah, around. Yeah, there's a cow wandering around. There's a cow wandering around Moose County. Just somewhere around there, completely lost. Oh. Oh, Bessie, I hope. Yeah, it's going to be like whatever the sheep in, is the sheep in New Zealand that's refused to be caught for shearing for years. <laughs> yes. Shrek, that yes. was his name. Shrek was his name. And they ended up getting, what, 70 pounds of wool or something, like yes. some ridiculous amount. And mm -hmm. the whole thing just looked like a giant, <laughs> just a giant cotton swab with two tiny, with like four tiny little legs. <laughs> it just, the poor, that poor sheep. Oh my goodness, it was hilarious. Anyway, so that's that's what I think happened to the to the missing cow. Okay. I'll take it. I'm interested in hearing about the uh, play about crows. Yes. So we'll, we'll have to go forward with this. The crowing. <laughs> anyway, um, any other thoughts about this book, Mom? Just the, the idea that there's more going on in Moose County than you really expect to see in such a small area. And yes, the newspaper has solid backing to do all these community-oriented events. But um, there's there's a, a good good process going on. Arch Riker runs a good newspaper. He does. He does. He did mm -hmm. down below, and um, and the idea of the um, car accident piece in front of the high school. Hopefully, some of that will come back, and and we'll talk about it a little more with regard to safe driving and kids being responsible with their actions. So yeah. we'll see what happens in the next few books. We shall indeed. We shall. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to the Catadita podcast. Our next episode involves UFOs indeed from what the tease is. And what so, is that one called? That is called The Cat Who Saw Stars. Wonderful. Well, Terry, thank you again so much for joining us. I'm happy to do it. This is fun. I'm remembering all sorts of books that now I want to go back and read the whole series. Yeah, there you go. Well, thank you so much, Mom. Thank you. I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Susan Romsdorf Terry. And until next time, happy sleuthing. And stay nosy, my friends. Mm -hmm.